Welcome to the Round Trip Death Podcast. This is the place where we hear from people who have clinically died, seen the other side, and return to talk about it. If you've had this kind of experience, send an email to eric at roundtripdeath.com. We would love to hear your story. In today's episode, we're going to be hearing from Allison, and this is a good reminder that every near-death experience is different. Some are long and have lots and lots of detail. Some are short and only have a little bit of detail, but they can still make a profound impact on the person's life. We have with us today, Allison Bryan. How are you, Allison? I'm good. How are you? Good. And Allison is enjoying a beautiful day in the Colorado Rockies. That's right. Nobody can see you nodding. You have to say yes or no for us. <laughs> That's right. It's a beautiful, what do they call it? A bluebird's day today. So we'll take it any day that we can. Good. Hey, tell us a little bit about you. Sure. So I'm currently located out just outside of Denver, Colorado, next to Green Mountain. Um I'm originally from Rochester, New York, so Western New York. We like to say we're honorary Canadians. Um, And for work, I work in technology and identity and access management software company. Um, But for fun, you'll find me often out either hiking. Um, I work out quite a bit. I ran college track, so I like to run. Um, And I used to teach cycling classes a lot. So you'll find me on my stationary bike quite a bit. Um, I have two German shepherds, um, and my husband and I, that's our kind of micro family here in Colorado. Um, yeah, that's a little bit about me. All right. Where are the dog's names? <laughs> um, and one is an all black shepherd named Tika, uh, and the other is an all white shepherd named Shuxon uh, after Mount Shuxon in Washington state. Hmm. Um, very random names. <laughs> Yeah, I guess so. There's a little yin and yang. Well, thanks for being on with us today. Let's go back in time a few years, and not a very few because you're pretty young still, but when you were 11 years old, you had an unusual experience. If you don't mind, I don't want to get too personal, but tell us a little bit about the health conditions that you dealt with. Yeah, so when I was about 9 or 10 years old, I was diagnosed with a supraventricular tachycardia Um, which is fairly common, but it can be pretty extreme for some folks. And what this means is my heart would race at a rate of about 280 to 300 beats per minute, which is pretty extreme when you think about your heart. (laughs) And usually the human heart can only last about 20 to 30 minutes in this state. Now I'm not a doctor, so that maybe this research has changed, Um, but it was a pretty uh, extreme condition to have at a young age and it continued to get worse throughout the years as I, as I aged um, from 9, 10, 11. And I was on a beta blocker for many years to help keep my heart calm. Um, but yeah, it was kind of the reason for my NDE. Tell me, what were there certain things in your life that would set off this heart racing? Um, it actually would happen unexpectedly we call them an episode so you could just be either sitting and all of a sudden your heart just spikes into a rapid heart rate for me a lot of times it was change in um, elevation of my head like if I bent over and stood up too quickly so your heart the blood flow tends to fluctuate when you do that 
Um, and it's almost like the electrodes, the little nodes in your heart that control the electricity and control how your heart beats. If the blood starts to go a different direction, they get confused or mine would, and it would fire incorrectly. And then all of a sudden my heart would be going at 300 beats per minute or something, you know, to a rate that you couldn't even really count manually. <laughs> that is crazy fast. I I mean, it seems like it would just kind of explode or something, but yeah. as a child, it can go a little faster than it can um, when you get older. How did that affect your track career and things like that? Or did you just grow out of it? Yeah. So um, growing up running track, you know, track was my true love and I was a sprinter. So um, it kind of made sense given tachycardia. I like to go from zero to 60 and so did my heart, <laughs> but I was often wearing a heart monitor growing up. Um, a lot of my friends knew kind of the protocol to help me if I had an episode after a race or during running. Um, and so it was very common to see me like cross a finish line and then immediately they would be strapping a heart monitor to my heart to just make sure everything was okay. Um, so it was sort of just managing it growing up. Um, I did eventually in, so ninth grade, I was probably 15 years old. I had heart surgery. Uh, it was minimally invasive, like a catheter ablation to kind of help get rid of the, you know, uh, issue, I guess. Um, but when they got in there, they said it was so much worse than they had even anticipated. The procedure is supposed to take like 45 minutes and mine was about three and a half to four hours long. Um, and so he did say it was very extreme, um, my physician, but it did ultimately control my condition. Like to date, I've only had one other episode and it was just recently last year that I've had an episode of tachycardia. Um, and so that's a pretty long time span, almost probably 20 years since I had surgery. So it's pretty good. Scary. Yeah. I still ran track about all of that. <laughs> all right. Let's talk 11-year-old Allison. What happened with this NDE? Was it one of these episodes? Yeah, so I was 11 years old, fifth grade. So that would be, to age myself, I guess, 1999. <laughs> um, and I was at band practice. I bent over to pick up my drumsticks and leave band practice. And that spiked my heart rate. And I thought, okay, I've done this before. I know what this is. We can kind of, there's a few, you know, vagal vascular maneuvers you can do to help control the heart and try to get it to stop. So I went to the nurse's office and I was really fortunate. My mom worked at the same school. And so she was able to come right to the nurse's office. We tried everything we could in the nurse's office for a solid 30 minutes and nothing was working. And at that point, you have to call an ambulance. We've got to get to the hospital. Somebody else has to intervene um, because your heart just cannot sustain this rate. And so ambulance arrives. My mom and I get into the ambulance with the EMT. We start heading off to the hospital. The EMT is trying everything again that he can under his like anything manual. So a lot of times he'll bear down on your thumb to try to like prep, put pressure on your heart to get the blood to flow the correct direction. So we tried that for a while in the ambulance and eventually he said like, all right, we have to try something different. So he put an IV in my arm. And at this point, the EMT and my mom are kind of whispering to each other. And I'm, you know, not quite sure what's going on. And it turns out he's telling my mom that he has to administer a medication, you know, called adenosine. And adenosine is typically reserved for adults. 
Um, he's never done this on a child before he explains to her, but it's his only option at this point. So what adenosine does is basically goes intravenously. It stops your heart with the hopes that your heart will like restart itself. So it's like a jump start for your heart. And again, I'm not a physician, so somebody else probably could explain this better, but did you just say it stops it with the hope that it'll restart? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. No worries here. I bet your mom was just freaking out. Yeah. And so he had the paddles ready, which he did that kind of secretly. So I couldn't see because, you know, my, oh my memory gosh. of this is very much just kind of laying on a stretcher waiting. But he did show her, like, I have the paddles ready. So we'll do whatever we can, CPR, whatever we need to, to make sure her heart jump starts. Um, and it shouldn't be very long is what he said. Like, it'll be quick. Yeah. All these hopefullys and shouldn'ts. I'm just thinking of this from a parent's perspective. Terrifying. I mean, I know. just terrifying. But you have to do what you have to do. Yeah. My mom says that, you know, it's one of the more traumatizing things for her, too. And, you know, you don't even recognize that as an 11 year old now. Oh, no. Older. I'm like, no. mom, I can't believe you you know, went through that with the situation, but yeah. So he, um, they strapped me down. I remember this too distinctly because that's when I started to have like my first moment of worry was when, you know, there's these seat belts that come across like your upper chest, your mid chest. And they were just, he was just working really hard to strap everything down. <laughs> and I was thinking, why would you do that? Um, so I had, that was my first moment of just like, I wonder what's really going to happen, but you know, your mortality isn't as close to you as a kid, I think. And so he administers the medication as he's doing. So he just says, I want you to focus on that clock on the back of the ambulance, just focus on that. And in a minute, you're going to feel a little funny, maybe a little bit faint, but it should pass fairly quickly. And so I'm thinking, okay, great. So I just stared right at the clock and within maybe a matter of seconds, my legs felt like they were just like paint cans in my calves. Like my, my legs were so heavy. I remember thinking like, whoa. And then right away, I am about one inch away from the clock on the back of the ambulance. Like, I mean, clear as day, right up against the clock with my face. And I can feel myself, I, I can feel myself kind of floating at this point. My legs are no longer heavy. And then I hear this loud screaming, this very loud screaming. And I turn around and I can physically look down at my body and see 11-year-old me. Like what I see today is a purple t-shirt and jeans. Like I can see exactly me. And I see my mom and I see the EMT and they're both over me. Kind of like my mom's holding my hand. They're, they seem to be talking to me. <laughs> and I can just see this clear as day. Some of my periphery is, is fuzzy and it didn't feel like I was being pulled anywhere, but I felt like the heaviness was gone and someone was screaming. Um, and then immediately, not immediately, within a few moments, I'm back inside my body looking up at my mom. And the first thing I say to her is like, mom, why were you screaming so loud? You know, 11 year olds just asking the silliest questions. And she's like, no, you were screaming. I wasn't screaming. And I thought to myself like, okay, something just happened to me. And I remember telling my mom uh, later that night, kind of what had happened. Um, Cause I was thinking that was really strange. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's kind of my brief NDE experience. 
Okay. So as an 11 year old, how do you process that? I remember at first thinking like, I started to doubt it a little bit. Like I was like, did that happen? And I felt the need to tell my mom nearly like right away. And we did talk about it. And she said, um, at this time, you know, my spiritual upbringing is super uh, rooted in Christianity, I would say. And so she said, well, this makes sense based on everything we know, like there's an afterlife and your heart had totally flatlined. And um, one of the things I forgot to mention, the EMT actually printed out the flatline for me to keep as like, he said, Hey, you should keep this as a token, like a prize. Cause look, you like you died. And that was something he was very funny and like trying to keep it upbeat. Um, and I later tattooed that on my rib cage so that I could have it. Um, and then subsequently, like as a kid, at some point I put it through the washing machine too, but it was enough that we could tattoo it. Uh, let me ask you a quick question. Do you have a picture of the paper that the EMT gave you or the tattoo that we could attach to this show someplace? I do. Yeah, I can definitely provide that. Um, the actual picture, I don't know where that is of the paper. It's somewhere in my parents' basement, I think. But yes, I can provide probably a picture of the tattoo. <laughs> I think people might want to see it. Why not? Yeah. Okay, keep going. Yeah. So, yeah, afterwards, I told my mom right away and I felt like, you know, did this actually happen? And it was kind of something that I struggled with on and off. I kind of set, set it aside for a long time, to be honest, as a kid, you're just kind of, um, yeah, it, you're not as close to your mortality. I felt like as I've gotten older, I've leaned into that a bit more and that experience kind of just define kind of who I am as I've grown into my adolescent and adulthood. Um, but as a kid, I kind of just set it aside. Like that was strange, but my heart condition did continue to get worse. And I was diagnosed formally with sudden death syndrome. And so that's kind of what the preemptive to kind of have surgery was that conversation when the doctor was like, this is just so bad. Like this is going to continue to happen and you can't live your life on an extreme dose of beta blocker as a 12 year old um, because you sort of become a little zombie like, like it was nice. Nothing really scared me. I wasn't really anxious, um, but it's a hard way to kind of go through your developmental years on a beta blocker. Sure. What are the other side effects of those? Honestly, I don't think there's a lot of negative side effects, just that like you're developing core parts of your brain and your nervous system while on a medicine that blocks your nervous system. And I will say as an adult, that's fairly anxious. Now, <laughs> I think that a lot of my um, anxiety and lack of ability to kind of like cope could be explained by the fact that I didn't have to cope very much as a child because I was so medicated, if that makes sense. Like you didn't learn your coping mechanisms. Sure. And so I really had to learn those later in life, kind of navigate through coping mechanisms. Did you tell any friends about this or just your mom? Um, I actually... I'm just curious how people may have reacted. Yeah. I had shared my story of dying, what I call dying. I guess I didn't technically die of flatlining um, with a lot of people. It was my college essay um, because it was a very defining moment for me. 
Um, however, a lot of people, my English teacher at the time was like, I don't think we should really mention the out of body experience because it may make it seem less real. So, um, the story of my flatlining is out there very much. So I think it's, it was such a critical part of who I was. Everybody kind of knew about it. Um, and it really did change me, I think, that moment and realizing like I had left my body. But it is interesting back at that time, this is probably early 2000s, a lot of people were like, let's just leave that part out of your college essay and have it be more of an adversity story, um, for better or for worse. They didn't want you to sound crazy. Right. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is getting more mainstream, but the farther back you go, the more people thought at the time, Hey, if you talk about this, you're, yeah, there, there's something wrong with your brain and you're loopy. And yeah, you called it a defining moment. Explain that a little bit more. How did it define your life from that point on? Yeah, I think, um, it helped define my life because I had such reassurance in some form of soul, some form of afterlife, like there was such a clear knowing that your consciousness remains and that your consciousness is not always who you are, if that makes sense as a human. And so ever since I think I left my body, I've always felt like my soul is sort of just on the outside of my body, if that makes sense. Like everything you know, I've always been a very sensitive kid and a very sensitive person, but I think even after that, I feel things so much deeper and interactions become so much more important to me. Um, telling people that like you love them and knowing just kind of how special, not believing in accidents, like there's no coincidences, like everything became very sort of spiritual on earth for me, I think after that. And it's really guided me as a guiding principle. Like life is very short. It it's, it's over like that, but there's something beyond this as well. So there's like that duality of like, let's make sure we're telling one another, we love each other while we're here and honoring that space, but also resting in that there's something more, you know? So I think that's kind of just, I've lived a little bit more intensely because of this experience. That must give you some kind of an interesting, I don't know how to explain it, but some kind of a confidence, not fearing death that other people don't have. You know, it's funny. I wish I mentioned this earlier, but I'm, I still have my own anxieties, my own proclivities as a human. Um, I still have some fear around the act, you know, I don't ever want it to be painful or, the human part of dying. I think I still have some, like, I hope it's not painful, if that makes sense. Oh yeah. The act of dying does not sound fun at all, but <laughs> most people that have been through this don't have fear of what happens after that. Yeah. And I will say it's brought a lot of reassurance. Um, I recently lost a close friend. My close friend's husband suddenly, um, he, died from being struck by lightning. And I think that was so intense for us just recently to go through that, that sharing my story with her has brought 
a lot of comfort, I think, knowing so that she can know, like, you know, I know that he's close by. Like, I know kind of what happened when he left his body kind of feeling. And so it has brought a lot of, I've noticed that like my ability to rest in that and share that with others has also brought comfort to that too. Oh, that's great. It's interesting as I do these interviews and some people have, have a near death experience where, you know, all the things you've heard before, there's a tunnel and there's a light and they, and some people, you know, go through various rooms and see reviews of their life and all kinds of things like that. But it's interesting to hear your story, which is that even a very brief time of leaving the body and realizing that there's more to life than just this physical body here sounds like it made a very profound influence on your life. Just the same as people that have much longer, more flamboyant kinds of NDE experiences. Yeah, I can't imagine, you know, it's part of me wishes I had more, you know, like I wanted to know what else was there, but um, yeah, hearing other stories and just that brief incident gives you that like reassurance that you need to know that there's so much, it's so critical to focus on kind of like your consciousness and your soul and that, yeah, there's more to life than just what we see in one another. There's so much more magic around us every day, I think. No, that's great. How else do you think you can use this for good? Hmm. I think for me, it's almost like bringing in that everyday magic. I keep using that word, but I think there's a way in which it's very easy for us as humans to get really into a routine and fall into kind of life at one tone at one pitch. And we forget like if we zoom out what it actually sounds like and what it actually looks like at the macro level and how critical even just your small sphere of influence can be um, that you can change a whole, a, a small community and that it like has that ripple effect, right? That orchestration and it can go other places and by stepping into kind of like who you are fully and like living your life for more than just like your day-to-day paycheck and this like acknowledging that there's magic in every interaction, I think can really bring this elevated experience to the world and like help others see that in themselves too. And like helps them grow into the best versions of themselves. Oh, that's beautiful. Nice job. You're wise beyond your years and this probably contributed to it. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. It's uh, lived many lives, I suppose. <laughs> I think I saw on your website, you do a lot of writing and, and you're a writer. Is this affected? Do you think you're writing? Yeah, I think my writing is, um, I was just talking about this with a friend that a lot of my creativity and writing has come from a place of deep, deep soulful reflection. And I think part of that soulful reflection has come from having experienced something traumatic and large and life-changing like an NDE. And so I think for sure it's made me kind of more receptive and perceptive of the world. And I just see things on such a different plane, I think, than most might because of that. Um, But it definitely feeds 
my creativity, which for better or for worse, I don't know, because sometimes it can just be a lot, it can be really heavy. A lot of my writing is sort of out of a, a grief, sort of that creative nonfiction. So it's true stories, but sort of creatively told. Um, and yeah, I think that can, it definitely takes a toll, but I think it's definitely what drives me in that space. Okay. I mean, you mentioned the word traumatic and I, to me that usually has negative consequences, but <laughs> there was a lot of positive that came from this too, wasn't there? Yeah. It's interesting. I, it's, um, I say traumatic strictly because I'm currently working through with my mom. I don't have a lot of memories of my childhood and, and we're always talking through why that is. Cause I have to ask her about everything. Like who was my first grade teacher and as horrible as that is, you know, I just don't remember a lot. And so that's why I kind of think what was the event that maybe caused either, maybe it was being on beta blockers for many years, um, but could also be this, you know, large event that happened in my life that kind of severs off part of your memory. And so I've been trying to work through that recently, but in that same vein, I think from trauma, you know, it's kind of like a hurricane, right? It's like um, things get so messy for a really quick amount of time, but without that hurricane, you wouldn't get like exotic flowers that we have today, right? Like hurricanes are known for bringing new species and new life in. And so it kind of feels like that for me, like it was very traumatic. And then it was just caused a lot of beauty kind of on the other side, being able to kind of see people differently and see your life differently. So how did it make you different from other young people your age <laughs> as teenagers, for example? Yeah, I think I've always been, I think it caused me to be even more empathetic. So um, for example, if we had a foreign exchange student in school, like I always took them under my wing. Like if there was somebody who I saw in like a needing sort of space, or if I could bring somebody in to the circle and huddle with them, I was always looking for that opportunity. Um, and I think, yeah, I think it's really caused kind of, I was just more of a intense child. Like I wanted to do big things. Like I had big goals and, um, was like, I'm not gonna, I always told my parents, like, I'm not going to settle for X, Y, and Z. I'm just going to shoot my shot and try for the best. And I'm going to move to California and I'm going to live my best life. I didn't, I didn't move to California, but, um, just for a long time have been like, I'm not going to stop at, you know, good enough. I really wanted to drive to be, to live my fullest life. And I still feel that way. <laughs> That's great. Is there anything else you want to share with our listeners? No, I don't think so. I think, you know, um, it's been a true honor to even be on here today and talk with you and hear from other stories. I'm so glad that we can all share in that um, space together because I think it's such a critical conversation to be having. It's good to have a safe space. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for creating that. And it seems like everybody I talk to, they get something out of sharing it. And I know the people listening to it definitely do as well. You know, just like I say in the, in the end of this thing, usually just a little more hope. It's a nice thing in the world today. Yeah. Yeah. We can all hold on to hope. Hope, hope is a good addiction right now. 
Absolutely. All right. Thanks, Allison. Thanks for being on today. Thank you. It's been great. If you have had a round-trip death experience, we would love to hear about it. Send an email to eric at roundtripdeath.com. And lastly, if you've found this program uplifting, if it's given you just a little more hope in the future, share it with a friend, hit that follow button, and take a few seconds to write us a review. Until next time, I wish you everything good that you're looking for in this life and the next.